the biblical scholar N.T. Wright tells the following joke. A father was getting ready to go on a business trip for a few days, and he wanted to make sure that his wife was well cared for in his absence. So he has a little talk with his oldest son, who was about 12 years old at the time. And he says, look, son, I'm going away, so I want you to anticipate the kinds of things that I would do if I were here, and I want you to do them for me. Now, he was thinking of clearing the table, doing the dishes, taking out the garbage and the recycling, maybe throwing in a load of laundry. So he goes on the trip, and he comes home, and he asks his wife, well, how did things go? And she said, it's the most surprising thing. After breakfast on the very first day, he got up, and he poured himself a cup of coffee, and he went into the living room and sat down, turned on the music, got on his iPhone, and was oblivious to the rest of the world for the rest of the day. The father realized that perhaps his son had followed his instructions a little too accurately. Like father, like son. Well, we're in the midst of a sermon, a sermon series focused on the Sermon on the Mount, which I have been saying reveals to us Jesus' vision of the good life. This is Jesus' vision of the flourishing life. This is God's whole new way of being human. Or you could say the Sermon on the Mount reveals God's whole new way of becoming like himself. Because in the passage that is before us today, Jesus says that we are supposed to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. Now that word perfect doesn't mean that we're supposed to be sinless or flawless. Rather, that word means to be complete or whole. So we're called to be complete and whole as our Heavenly Father is complete and whole. Now that sounds like a lot of pressure, does it not? But remember, Jesus is not telling you what you need to do in order to enter the kingdom of God, but rather the Sermon on the Mount reveals who you become when the presence and power of God come into your life. And when Jesus comes into your life, you become different. When Jesus comes into your life, you become like God himself. And that, of course, is the whole point not only as individuals, but as a community, we're supposed to function like a 45-degree angled mirror. We're supposed to reflect the reality of who God is to the world around us. So much so that when people look at our lives, they see something so beautiful, so distinctive, that they respond by saying, wow, there must be a God. So my question is, is that happening? Is that what people are saying when they look at our lives individually and as a community? And if not, why not? Well, if that's not the response that we're getting, I would suggest that it means that we are not living the way of Jesus. Now, this passage today brings us to the very heart of the Sermon on the Mount, and it reveals what many have called the way of Jesus. So as we consider the Jesus way this morning, I want us to ask three questions. Why do we need it? What is it? How do we get it? So if you would, let me invite you to open up a Bible to Matthew chapter 5. You'll find our passage printed beginning on page 810 of the Pew Bible. It's also printed in your order of worship. I'll be reading Matthew 5, verses 38 through 48. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. 
You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. This is God's word. It's trustworthy and it's true and it's given to us in love. Will you pray with me? Father, we acknowledge that apart from you, these words would remain nothing more than letters on a page. And so we pray that by your grace, the same spirit that once inspired these words might illuminate them now for us so that Jesus' words might catch fire and burn within our hearts, leading us to a living encounter with him. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, you could sum up the Jesus way as self-sacrificial, contra-conditional love. And I'll explain what I mean by that in a minute. But first, if that's what it is, why do we need it? Well, given the state of the world, I think we need it now more than ever. So let me explain why. A few years ago, I actually preached on this same passage, and I talked about the power of forgiveness, and a friend posted the sermon to social media, and someone wrote a negative comment in response. You know how these things go. Now, the negative comment didn't surprise me. What surprised me is that this negative comment was written by someone who claimed to be a Christian, and the response basically was, forgiveness is for wimps. Forgiveness is weak. Loving your enemies is impractical and unrealistic. It doesn't work. It short circuits your ability to express anger towards wrongdoing and it just allows people to take advantage of you all over again. So this is coming from someone who claimed to be a Christian and this made me curious. How do we get to a place where a Christian could so brazenly dismiss Jesus and Jesus' teaching. And as I reflected on that, I realized that as a society, as a society, we have become, on the one hand, more fragile, and we have, on the other hand, become less equipped to deal with conflict. See, on the one hand, we've become more fragile. Now, if you take a look at the modern world, compared to the past. Of course, people have always valued community and the importance of deriving a sense of personal identity. But the philosophers and the sociologists will tell you that in the past, people gained a sense of self by seeing themselves in relationship to the sacred order. In other words, a person knew who they were. They they gained a sense of self through their relationship to God by connecting to others and by fulfilling their obligations to their family, to their church, to their community. But now, in the modern world, we do not look out. We rather look in. We look deep within ourselves in order to discover our true identity. So people don't say today, well, I know who I am in relationship to God or others, or because I'm living in line with reality and pursuing the common good. 
But now people say, well, I know who I am. I've got a strong sense of self when I'm true, when I'm authentic to my inner desires deep within me. And people have often referred to this turn from the outward to the inward as the therapeutic turn where self-sacrifice has now been replaced by self-fulfillment. C.S. Lewis interestingly commented on this years ago. He said, for ancient people, the primary question was, how do I bring my desires into conformity with reality? But modern people flip it around and say, the primary question is, how do I bring reality into conformity with my desires? So I'll give you an example of this from the movie, The Greatest Showman, which is a pop musical about the life of P.T. Barnum and the Barnum and Bailey Circus, and it's a great film. It's both inspiring as well as entertaining. But the movie certainly captures this inward turn where people discover their true identity and their sense of self by looking deep within themselves. So listen to just a few of the lyrics from some of the songs. Here's one song, A Million Dreams. They can say it all sounds crazy. They can say I've lost my mind. I don't care, so call me crazy. We can live in a world that we design. Or hear the lines from Rewrite the Stars. It's up to you and it's up to me. No one can say what we get to be. So why don't we rewrite the stars? Maybe the world could be ours. Or hear the lines from This is Me. Look out, because here I come. And I'm marching on to the beat I drum. I'm not scared to be seen. I make no apologies. This is me. So the, the, the film captures this inward turn, this attempt to derive a sense of self, our, our true identity, by being authentic to the inner desires that lie within us. And as a result of this, the, the culture around us encourages us to pursue self-realization. But as a result of that, what that typically means is that we are told to put our own happiness, our own interests, our own needs first. And I would argue that that makes us more fragile when it comes to conflict. It makes us more fragile because despite what people say, well, I don't need anybody else. I don't need the validation and the acceptance of anybody else. It's not true. We probably need it even more than ever. Because we say, I am unique. I am special. And they have to think so, whoever they may be. And so in this fragile state, we, accept, we expect everyone around us to, to affirm our inner desires and, and our inner choices. And if they don't validate and affirm those desires and choices, then it feels like a threat to our very sense of self. Anything that challenges our desires or questions our choices is viewed as a threat to our identity, and therefore we see it as something that should be rejected. So on the one hand, we become more fragile. On the other hand, I would say that we are less equipped to deal with conflict, and why is that? Well, because our broader society not only trains us to think of ourselves purely as individuals, but it also trains us to think of the world, the society at large, as the problem. The problem is always out there, and we never look at ourselves. We never take a hard look at our own hearts. And so, In a strange twist, this therapeutic turn has created what some have called a new sort of honor-shame culture. Now, we usually think of an honor-shame culture associated with the East, 
But we're talking about an honor-shame culture that's operating now in the West, but with a new wrinkle. Because in the past, in an honor-shame culture, the greatest amount of honor would be conferred upon the person who has nobly fulfilled their duties to their community or to their people, sometimes that great sacrifice to themselves. But now the greatest honor is conferred upon those who are victims, those who have been mistreated or abused, especially by those in positions of power. And so as a result of that, our culture incentivizes us to be vindictive. So the more we uh, just, just punish people mercilessly for their wrongdoing, the more we accrue power for ourselves. And there's probably a, a second order of, of honor that is granted not towards the victims directly, but those who align themselves with the victims. So you see, our, our, our culture seems to encourage us to, to be as vindictive as possible and to signal that we are on the right side of whatever the virtue debate might be. Now, I want you to listen very carefully to what I'm saying here because I don't want you to misunderstand me. Of course, of course, we have to defend and stand up for those who have been mistreated and abused. Christianity, perhaps more than any other religion in the world, tells us to defend the vulnerable and to protect the weak. So if you are facing any kind of difficulty in your life right now, come to us, let us know. That's why we're here. We are here to help. So the point that I'm trying to make here is that my concern is not with those who are true victims of mistreatment or abuse. My concern is with the victim mentality that has seeped into our broader culture. We've made this victim mentality central to our sense of self or to our identity. And if that victim status becomes central to your sense of who you are, then what does that lead you to do? What leads you to blame, to vilify others, to seek revenge? And so here's the problem. In, in an honor-shame culture based on victimhood, there's, there's no place for deliberation or debate. If you think of your opponent as not merely misguided or mistaken or wrong, but you think of your opponent as evil, then what more is there to talk about? All that's left is a power grab, or what Friedrich Nietzsche would call a will to power. And that changes the rules of the game. You see, in, in this sort of honor-shame culture that's based on a victim mentality, all people want is to win at all costs. It's kill or be killed. And that results in an ethics of revenge or an ethics of vindictiveness or an ethics of annihilation. And that's what we're living through right now. That's what we mean by a cancel culture. This is what leads people to cancel one another or to deplatform one another. And the question is, when will it ever end? But to come back to where we began, I'm not surprised by the vindictiveness that we see out there in the wider world. We can explain that. That makes sense. What concerns me, what surprises me, and what troubles me is that many Christians are in danger of falling prey to this victim mentality. Because Christians could look at the wider world around us and they might lament the fact that Christianity has fallen from a position of influence within Western culture. 
They might be upset or even angry that Christianity is no longer at the center, but it's moved to the periphery of culture, and they want to to win the culture war. They want to bring Christianity back to the center, and they assume, therefore, that you have to fight fire with fire. But when we do that, we are no longer playing by the rules of the kingdom of God. Now we're playing by the rules of the world. And what I want to say is we cannot give in to an ethic of revenge. We cannot give in to an ethic of vindictiveness. We have to reject the way of Nietzsche and we have to choose the way of Jesus. So what is the Jesus way? The Jesus way is self-sacrificial, contra-conditional love. And that's what this passage is all about. First of all, it is self-sacrificial. Now, Jesus begins in verse 38 by quoting a famous law from the Old Testament, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, what you need to realize is that in context, when this law was originally given, God gave this principle not to individuals to apply to their personal relationships. The law was given to judges, to the judges who were overseeing the civil society of ancient Israel. You can read about it in Exodus 21, Leviticus 24, Deuteronomy 19. And why does God give this principle, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, to the judges in ancient Israel? Well, it was in order to prevent evil from escalating when people take justice into their own hands, right? If you're going to seek vengeance in order to make right what once went wrong, if someone has hurt you or hurt someone close to you, it almost is never measure for measure. We almost always go too far. And so... God introduces this principle of retribution in order to ensure fairness. But what was the problem? Well, the problem in Jesus' day is that people were taking this principle of retribution, which was reserved for the courts, and now they're, they're applying it to their personal relationships, precisely the thing that God was trying to avoid. So in verse 39, Jesus says, Do not resist the one who is evil. And I would argue that most of the time, we don't really understand what he's talking about. But if we see in context what the problem is, we realize that Jesus is not saying you should never join the army or serve in the military. He's not saying you should never become a police officer. He's not saying if you see someone being abused by someone else that you should not intervene and stop it. And he's not saying that you should be a doormat and just let people walk all over you. No, what is he saying? What does he mean when he says, do not resist the one who is evil? What he's saying is do not insist on your rights in your personal relationships, especially when you experience conflict. Do not insist on your rights. Now, you've probably never heard the Sermon on the Mount like this, but let me explain that that's what Jesus means. He gives us four scenarios to consider. First of all, he says, imagine someone slaps you on the right cheek. If someone backslaps you with the back of their hand, that would be an insult in the ancient world as it is today. And though it would be offensive, it's not exactly a violent crime. And yet, at the same time, if someone were to backslap you, that would hurt. And uh, that would make you upset. So what are you supposed to do? Curl up in a ball on the ground? No, Jesus says, if someone were to strike you 
according to Exodus 21, you had the right to sue for damages, but do not insist on your rights. Turn the other cheek. Stand your ground, but don't retaliate. Don't insist on your rights. Or he gives us a second scenario. Imagine if someone sues you for your tunic, for your shirt. I don't know why someone would want to sue you for your tunic, but they could. But according to the Old Testament law, they could not sue you for your cloak. According to Exodus 22, your cloak was an inalienable possession. And why was that? Because the cloak was not only your outer coat, but especially for the poor, it served as your bedding. That's what you slept in. No one could ever take it away from you. And Jesus says, if someone were to even sue you for the shirt off your back, they could, but give them your cloak as well. The one thing they could never lay claim to. Don't insist on your rights. That's how you overcome evil with good. Or a third scenario. If someone forces you to go one mile, go two. Well, do you realize that in the first century, the Romans had the right They had the right to force a civilian to carry their gear or their equipment a certain distance, about a mile or so. And so Jesus is saying, someone could force you to carry their stuff for a mile and not an inch farther, but go the second mile. Don't insist on your rights. And then he says, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have the right to refuse to give anything to anyone. It's yours. But a free and unselfish attitude towards our rights should also be extended to our money and our possessions. So give. Don't hold on to what's yours. You see, if you've got a legalistic attitude that dwells on retaliation and your view of fairness, you're going to focus on your rights rather than your responsibilities. You're going to focus on what you're entitled to rather than how you can contribute to the good, the flourishing of others. But Jesus says, don't insist on your rights by asking, well, what's in it for me? Or what am I going to get out of this? But rather seek to overcome evil with good. You don't have to, but you should. So first of all, the way of Jesus is self-sacrificial, but secondly, it is contra-conditional. Now, what do I mean by that? God loves us with a contra-conditional love. God's love for you is not conditional. God does not love you because of who you are or what you've done, but his love is even better than unconditional love. He doesn't merely love you as you are. His love is contra-conditional. He loves you despite who you are, despite what you've done. And if God is contra-conditional love, then we are called to reflect the reality of that love to the world around us. So in verse 43... Jesus refers to a popular saying. You shall love your neighbor as yourself and hate your enemies. Well, there's just one little problem with that popular saying. The first part came from the Old Testament scriptures. The second did not. Leviticus chapter 19 verse 18 says, love your neighbor as yourself. But nowhere in the Old Testament did it say that you should hate your enemies. But people in Jesus' day interpreted those words in an exclusive sense. Well, if you're called to love your neighbor as yourself, that means you have to love those who are like you, who love you in return, the people who share your ethnicity or your religion or your values. And you know what? People do that still today. We interpret those words of Jesus in a rather narrow sense. Years ago, when I was working as a campus minister 
at Northwestern outside of Chicago, I often participated on a panel that was focused on interreligious dialogue for the residential colleges. And on this panel, I was often joined by a Jewish rabbi or a Muslim chaplain. And the moderator would uh, usually adopt the, the secular view of religion and say that uh, essentially all claims to religion, all religions and various forms of spirituality are the same. You can just reduce everything to the lowest common denominator. So one night, the moderator introduces the discussion by saying, isn't it true that all of you religious leaders might disagree on who God is or how we are supposed to connect to God, how we're supposed to relate to God, but you could all agree on the call to love the neighbor. In other words, he might say, you have disagreements when it comes to theology, but you're all in agreement when it comes to ethics. And I'll never forget what happened because at that point, an Orthodox Jewish rabbi interrupted. He said, hold on just a minute. It is true that all of us up here would say that we're called to love the neighbor, but we mean different things by that term. And then he said, Jesus is the one who messed this all up. Jesus is the one who messed this all up because he said, when we say love your neighbor as yourself, we mean love your fellow Jew. But Jesus redefined neighbor. And Jesus said that you're called to love your neighbor, meaning anyone at all including even your enemy. And he's right. Jesus is the one who messed this all up. So in verses 44 through 47, Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love must go beyond those who are like us or who love us in return because we have to reflect the contra-conditional love of God. In God's common grace, he sends his reign on the evil and on the good. He makes his sun shine. Uh, he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. In other words, God lavishes the good gifts of his creation indiscriminately. And therefore, as his followers, we should be no less generous than God himself. If you only love those who look like you or who love you in return, Jesus says you're no different than the tax collectors and the pagans. The tax collectors, of course, were hated and despised for collaborating with the Romans, but even worse, they extorted money from their own people. And yet even tax collectors had friends, presumably other tax collectors. Even tax collectors loved their moms. So Jesus says, you're no better if you only love those who are like you or who love you in return. Even the pagan Gentiles would greet one another and wish each other well. So if you love those who love you, big deal. Who cares? Everybody can do that. But if we're going to reflect the love of God, we must love those, not only who deserve it, but rather we must love those who deserve the exact opposite of the love that we show. That's what it means to demonstrate contra-conditional love. Some of you may know the name of Dr. Robert Coles. In 1960, he was a 31-year-old child psychiatrist who had just spent two years serving in the Air Force in Mississippi. 
and he was eager to return home to his native Boston in order to continue his work in child psychiatry. But before returning home, he decided to take a detour through New Orleans because he was curious. He was curious about how the threats and the violence against the civil rights movement were affecting the emotional well-being of children in the African-American community. And so one day he drove by William France Elementary School during desegregation, and he watched as six-year-old Ruby Bridges was accompanied by federal marshals to school as she fights her way through a crowd of 200 or so angry people. And Coles was so impressed by her quiet dignity and her resilient courage that he resolved that he was going to interview her parents, her teachers, and, of course, Ruby herself. Now, the teachers at school marveled at how well Ruby held up under pressure. But being a skeptical psychiatrist, Robert Cole said that, no, not all was as it seemed. Ruby appeared strong, but no, she would crack. She was probably in denial, or maybe she was hiding behind some kind of defense mechanism. So just give it a little more time, and she would show signs of psychological wear and tear. Now, Coles knew that Ruby and her parents attended church on a regular basis and that her parents said that their faith is what sustained them throughout the turmoil. Both of her parents had received numerous death threats. Her father had lost his job once the schools were integrated. But Coles was dismissive and cynical when adults and especially children talked about their views of God or their views of right and wrong. And instead, he tried to fit everything into the psychological categories in which he had been trained. But then something happened. Something happened that changed Dr. Robert Coles forever. See, one day, one of the teachers at the school was watching through a classroom window as Ruby made her way towards the school. And the large crowds were there shouting, like always. But on this particular day, this teacher saw a woman spit at Ruby, though she missed. And Ruby smiled at the woman. And then this teacher saw a man shake his fist right in Ruby's face, and she smiled at him. And then when she got to the top of the steps outside of the schoolroom, she, she turned around and she faced the crowd again. She smiled one more time and then the teacher saw her lips moving and she wondered what she was saying to the crowd. And so later, Robert Coles asked her about it and this is how he recounts it in an interview he gave later in life. He said, Ruby, your teacher told me today that she saw you talking to those people in the street. She said to me, Doctor, I, I told her that I wasn't talking to the people. I said, well, who were you talking to, Ruby? She said, I told her I was talking to God. Why were you praying to God? She said, I was praying for the people in the street. I said, why were you doing that, Ruby? Because I wanted to pray for them. Ruby, why would you want to pray for those people? She looked at me and her eyes widened and she said, don't you think they need praying for? That stopped me cold. Where did you get that idea, Ruby? Well, my mommy and daddy have told me that, and the minister told me that at church. I pray for them every morning. And I pray for them every afternoon when I go home. 
Then I said, Ruby, those people are so mean to you and they are so nasty to you. You must have some other feelings towards them besides wanting to pray for them. She said, I just keep praying for them and I just hope that God will be good to them. What do you say in the prayer, Ruby? I always say the same thing. What's that, Ruby? I always say, please, dear God, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Now, I had, I had heard that someplace before, and I heard it in that kitchen, in that extremely impoverished house, and it silenced me. Ruby further explained, the minister said that God is watching, and he won't forget because he never does. The minister says, if I forgive the people and smile at them and pray for them, then God will keep a good eye on everything, and he will be our protection. Cole was asked if she believed the minister was on the right track. Oh, yes, she said. I'm sure God knows what's happening. He's got a lot to worry about, but there's bad trouble here, and he can't help but notice. He can't help but notice. And you see, Ruby's life was so distinctive, so beautiful, that this cynical, skeptical Dr. Robert Coles thought to himself, wow, there must be a God. See, what was Ruby Bridges doing she was not pursuing the path of self-fulfillment. She was pursuing the path of self-sacrifice. And she would have been perfectly within her rights. She would have been perfectly within her rights to avoid those people, to ignore those people, or to merely tolerate those people. But she didn't insist on her rights. Instead, she chose to love her enemies and to pray for those who persecuted her. It is very difficult to hate the people you pray for and it is very difficult not to love the ones for whom you do. But you see, Ruby showed love that was not conditional. She didn't love those people because of who they were or what they were doing. But she, her love was not even conditional. She didn't love them as they were. No, her love was contra-conditional. She loved them despite who they were, despite what they were doing. And that is why she reflects the contra-conditional love of our Heavenly Father. So you tell me, you tell me, is forgiveness for wimps? Is forgiveness weak? Is loving your enemies impractical, unrealistic, unworkable? Is it more authentic to express your anger or to seek revenge? I don't think so. I think it takes strength to love people who hate you. But it unleashes a power unlike anything the world has ever seen. It's the power of self-sacrificial, contra-conditional love. And we need that power now more than ever. So the question is, how do we get it? How do we get this power into our lives? How do we become people like this? Well, we have to experience it for ourselves. And let me tell you how. Do you realize that not long after Jesus preached this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, he was taken in a custody by a whole battalion of Roman soldiers. And do you know what they did? They backslapped him across the face. They insulted him. They put a, a crown of thorns on his head and mockingly called him the king of the Jews. And then you know what they did. They took his tunic. They took the shirt off of his back, but that's not all. They took his cloak. The one thing you could never take. They took his cloak. They gambled for his clothes and took away his robe. And what did they force Jesus to do? 
They didn't force Jesus to carry their gear or their equipment. No, they forced Jesus to carry the horizontal beam of his own cross, the half mile to the place of execution. And through it all, Jesus did not insist on his rights. No, he loved his enemies and prayed for those who persecuted him. Even as they drove the nails into his hands and into his legs, he said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. And even as he hung there helpless on the cross, he wasn't thinking about himself. Even on the cross, he refused to give to the one who begged from him. When the criminal crucified at his side begged him, remember me when you come into your kingdom, Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. You see, Jesus demonstrated self-sacrificial, contra-conditional love from the cross. And why did he do it? He did it for you and he did it for me. To overcome evil with good and to transform enemies into his children. Do you realize that the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5 verse 10 that in our natural state, we are enemies of God? And you might say, I'm not God's enemy. I don't have a problem with God. He might have a problem with me, but I don't have a problem with God. I might be indifferent to God, but I'm not hostile to God. But that's not true. That's a superficial response. All of us in our natural state are opposed to God. We're enemies of God. Why? Because we don't want someone telling us that we're not living our life right. We don't want someone else telling us that we need to live our lives in conformity with the reality, the world that he's made. We don't want other people telling us what to do. We want to call our own shots. We want to be our own gods. And so in our natural state, we have set ourselves up in opposition to God. We are God's enemies. And yet, what does God do in response? He doesn't destroy us. He doesn't punish us mercilessly. He doesn't seek revenge. No, he dies for us. Jesus willingly goes to the cross for us in order to overcome evil with good and to transform us, those who were once his enemies, into his beloved children who now reflect his love into the world around us. So has that happened to you? Have you experienced this self-sacrificial, contra-conditional love. If you're not yet a Christian, the first thing you have to do is receive it for yourself by faith. But if you are a Christian, if you are now God's child because of what Jesus has done for you through his life and his death and his resurrection, you may not choose the way of Nietzsche. You must choose the way of Jesus and then reflect that self-sacrificial, contra-conditional love back out into the world so people might look at you and me and our community together and say, wow, there must be a God because there's no other way to explain this distinctive life, this beautiful love that I am now witnessing. Maybe so. Let's pray. Father, as we consider the current state of our world, we recognize that we are fragile and we are so poorly resourced to deal with conflict in our lives. Help us to see that we discover our true identity, our true sense of self, not by going deep within ourselves, but by connecting out to you. It's in relationship to you that we discover who we really are 
And we pray that through the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, we might receive your grace so that we might be transformed from enemies into your children. And we ask that as a result of your Holy Spirit's work in us, that you might reflect your self-sacrificial, contra-conditional love out into the world through us so that others might discover the reality of who you are. We ask all this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.